Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello again, this is Jay Lockenauer, host of New Books in Military History, and I've tried to do something different today, so I'm going to say a few words for our listeners to just explain what's about to happen. Um, I decided on something of a whim to uh, interview a novelist who's written a novel that's uh, a compelling romance, but one that's powerfully shaped by war. So with me today is Nick Dybeck, who's an assistant professor of English at Oregon State University, and the author most recently of The Verdun Affair, a novel published in 2018 by Scribner's. Thanks for joining me, Nick. Thank you, Jay. It's my pleasure. So I, I want you to introduce the story. You're certainly uh, more practiced at that, and tell the tell the listeners a little bit about the what the story is about. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a love story, as you mentioned, that takes place in the aftermath of World War One, um, in particular in the aftermath of the Battle of Verdun. And the narrator of this book is an American named Tom who has, uh, through a kind of circuitous way, wound up uh, in France during World War I and has stayed on to uh, serve as an assistant to the Diocese of Verdun in their effort to um, collect all the thousands of bones that have been left on the battlefield uh, and, and kind of put them in order and, and into this uh, ossuary a memorial that they're in the process of building. And um, at the same time, though, there are uh, Verdun has become this kind of location of pilgrimage for the many people who have either lost a son or a husband, um, uh, you know, who died there, or or many others who more literally uh, have have lost a son or a husband, uh, someone who's come who's who's uh, was declared missing during the war. And so, in the early par- passages of the book, a, an American woman named Sarah Hagen shows up at Verdun uh, looking for her missing husband. Um, and uh, the story kind of follows their relationship as it as it progresses from from that initial meeting. So one of the things that Im- impressed me was the your ability to capture, um, you know, the atmosphere of post war Europe, both in France and Italy, where there uh, where the action takes place for the most part. Um, there are. I guess flashbacks, moments where characters recall the war itself. Uh, how did you, how did you assemble all this information? What kind of research did you do to, um, to put all this together so convincingly? Well, a lot. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote this over the course of um, almost seven years, and when I began the book, I had a interest certainly in the period and in in World War One in general for a a number of reasons, but I really didn't uh, have any deep knowledge or expertise. So I really had to find out a lot. Um, And uh, well, I mean, so I guess it might be useful to say first, you know, how how I got started on this at all. And um, one day in, I don't know, probably 2010 or something like that, I was driving home from work and there happened to be a story on the BBC about a memorial service that was being held between French and German leaders at, at Verdun. And um, it, it just mentioned in kind of a throwaway line that it was taking place at this uh, at this site called the Dumont Ossuary, which uh, was, was the location for the inter- internment of all these thousands of bones. And it just mentioned in one line that they had been collected over 
many years by just a few people. And that just really struck me. Um, it's a totally macabre image, of course, but just the idea of the question of what would that do to you if that was your job? Um, and, and you're in this kind of time period where everyone is trying to come to grips with the sort of unfathomable and what would have been just pretty recently an impossible kind of catastrophe that had just befall, befallen the world. And, and, you know, so everyone's dealing with that, but then you, you know, have these particular people who are, who are literally walking around trying to pick up these pieces that, that literally don't fit together anymore. Um, and that image, uh, was, uh, you know, kind of haunted me and was, uh, really led to everything else, you know? Um, and when I started, I, I had this image I was compelled by, but, but I didn't know much about what surrounded it. Uh, so I had to, I had a lot to find out. Um, I think I did that mostly in two ways. Uh, reading a lot of books was the primary one and uh, travel uh, to the places that I actually wrote about. Was well, I, was, I was curious. It was um, satisfying for me because I've been to many of the places that you, uh, that you, your characters visit, including Verdun only once, but enough. Um, I remember enough about it to, to really be convinced by your um, depiction of the, of the city in the aftermath of a terrible, devastating war and how people uh, pick up their lives, rebuild their businesses. Um, I was, you know, little interesting touches that you add, like the, the presence of so many fortune tellers and, uh, whatever you call someone who leads a seance, I guess. A medium, um, I think, right? Yeah. Medium, there you go. <laughs> Searching for the word. To, to serve these pilgrims who come and, and look for something, any kind of connection to their, to their lost one. Yeah, I mean, you know, so it's funny to, to go there now uh, because, you know, it's so much of it um, is still visible, right? I mean, so, so much of, uh, of World War I is still visible there. Um, in very intentional ways, right? Um, I mean, you probably remember from from me went that that a lot of the ground around the city uh, is you know still it's overgrown with grass now, but it still has that moonscape. Um, you know, looks like the ground looks like waves, right? Of of, of you can still see the old the old shelling. Uh, you can still see all the forts. Um, it's I'm not sure if you if you went to this part or not, but it's very moving to see these. Um, what they call destroyed villages, right? Uh, places mm -hmm. like Fleury, uh, which were wiped off the map during the face of the battle. And it was um, literally too dangerous to support life there anymore, right? Because, I mean, the ground was just so full of ordnance and, and scrap. And um, and so, you know, they never rebuilt rebuilt these little towns. But but they you can go now and see and, you know, kind of roped off. Like, you know, here's, here's where the town hall was. Here's where the church was. Here was the little main street. Um, so I, it re one thing that really struck me in going there was how odd it would be to grow up there now, you know, um, cause there's, there's not much going on in Verdun other. And, and I think this is kind of one of the interesting things about it. Just, you know, just even before the war, there, there has never been that much going on there. You know, it's always been this kind of sleepy provincial, uh, rather unimportant city, you know, economically or culturally. Um, but it just happens to be this site of one of the most infamous, um, uh, battles and events in general that, that have ever occurred in France. Um, I just, it just kept, you know, you know, it's like if you're uh, at junior high at Verdun junior high and, you know, it's like your every class trip is going to a cemetery or a war memorial or, or whatever, you know, that, I mean, that, that's, there's a novel in that, uh, in, in itself right there, I think. 
and if and then the impact not only on the landscape but on the on the people. I mean, you cite a couple of of excellent books on World War One in kind of acknowledgments at the end. You don't have footnotes or anything like that, but um, you you mentioned Paul Fussell's Great War and Modern Memory. There's um, Eric Leeds' No Man's Land and several other other very important books about the war. Um, so that I'm sure that helped you describe the kind of psychological trauma that that's involved um, for both for the soldiers and the civilians. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the and, and I, as you pointed out, like I mean, there, there's a fairly long list of, of acknowledgments um, of books I read, which uh, were uh, invaluable in trying to figure out some experience that you know. I mean, what compelled me about writing this experience and about writing people that had lived this is that it was so alien from anything I know, right? Um, so on one hand, that is what gets me interested in the material. On the other hand, as a novelist, that's what exactly the same thing that makes it really difficult to write about. So um, fortunately, uh, there is, uh, you know, I, I could have read wonderful books on this topic, probably you know, almost literally for the rest of my life without running out of them. Right. Um, you mentioned two of them, which were, uh, extremely, um, useful. Uh, but even more than that, I think that, um, reading, uh, primary sources, uh, memoirs of people that had, had been there in other places in world war one, uh, um, really helped me kind of try to get some kind of grip on what it would have been actually like to, to be there and experience it. So as an historian, it was it was a, a bit of a game for me to try to read behind what you were writing and, and see if I could figure out where this information was coming from. And, and you do such a great job, I think, you know, from, from a I, I think I said this in an email, you don't need an historian's seal of approval, but I'm, I'm happy to, to sort of give it here because you you tell the story in a way that that highlights um characteristics of the post-war period that I would, that I would make sure my students understood or, you know, that I would include in a book. So things like the way um, people cling to certain rituals of death. This is something that Jay Winter has written about in a, in a really uh, interesting way. And I could, I could see that in the way um, people are relating to the church or to the bones or to the mediums. So I wonder, you know, it's not an indictment if you didn't, but did you read Jay Winter? Uh, yeah, let's see. Uh, sites of sites of mourning, sites, sites of, of meaning. Is that one of his? Morning, yeah. Sites of memory, sites of mourning. Sites of memory. First. Uh, yes, I read. Uh, I read part of his book, um, uh, and I'm trying to think what. Yeah, you know, now I, at, at one point I probably could say, uh, you know, to your question, like, you know, here, here's. Here's a text that you know this this little snippet or detail came from. Here's another one. Um, I think in that one, one, one I might be remembering this wrong, but um, I I want to say from that book I learned one thing, which you know I always assumed that you you kind of you know the thing you see in, in the movies right is when you when you get uh, an announcement of um, that someone's been missing or or killed in action that a telegram comes. But uh, apparently, in at least in some French towns, it actually uh, fell to the mayor to deliver that news personally, uh, which I believe is something that I encountered in his book. Um, and so that was one detail that, uh, you know, just kind of in one sentence reading, you know, like actually created a, an early scene um, where, you, where you have this, this woman that's lost her husband come and and uh, then you, as a novelist, you kind of imagine, okay, well, you, you know, you, there's this, you know, mayor who's kind of walking around like almost like an undertaker every day. You're just hoping that he does not turn and come up your street and give you the news. 
And of course, one day he does, right? Um, so uh, I, I'm pretty sure that came from his book, and, and, I, and I owe him a great debt for that. And sort of the scene and Saving Private Ryan, if I'm remembering at the beginning, where the car, the kind of official looking car turns up the driveway and the, the mother seems to understand mm-hmm. what's what's about mm-hmm. to happen. Something similar yeah, to yeah, that. Exactly. And the other thing that comes out pretty clearly too is the 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 presence of maimed bodies of damaged men, mostly um, people damaged by the war. Just to, to imagine what it would be like on a daily basis, you would you'd be encountering people like this all the time that have suffered wounds or um, psychological uh, trauma. You think about George, the expressionist paintings of George Gross and people like that that captured that. I think your novel does a, a great job of capturing that too. Yeah, yeah. And, and who's the who's the German? Uh, Hans Dix, is that? Yeah, uh, Otto, Otto Dix, Dix is, is another Otto one. Dix, um, yeah. I always think of George Grosch, G-R-O-S-Z, mm-hmm. is a famous who depicted these really kind of uh, seedy street scenes with – with uh, wounded soldiers and prostitutes and things like that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and you know, in fact, there was a, some years ago, but during the time I was working on this, there was a, um, exhibit at the Guggenheim in New York that, um, uh, tried to kind of, you know, you know, just map some, some of, um, uh, some, how some of that exact thinking you're describing, describing, um, and lived experience kind of made its way into, into post-World War One art. And, uh, so, uh, certainly both, both of those two, uh, painters were, were people I thought a lot about. Let's, let's tell listeners a little bit more about the story again, without giving too much away, but you've, you've mentioned that, uh, Sarah Hagen comes looking for her missing husband, kind of refusing to believe that he's really dead and convinced that she'll find him somewhere. Um, she meets the main character, Tom, and they have a, a, a brief for, forbidden romance, but a bit, like I said, a very compelling one. I don't read a, a lot of novels uh, of this sort. And it was, uh, it was very both believable and interesting. I wanted to know what, what was going to happen uh, between the two of them. And um, so a big chunk of the book then revolves around a, a, an, another American or presumed American who has amnesia in Italy and the characters find themselves in Bologna trying to discover if this amnesiac is in fact, is her missing husband. So you get this, uh, you know, another setting where really terrible things are happening there too, because of the, uh, the, the, um, growth of the fascist movement and the eventual takeover mm-hmm. of, the, of the fascists in, in Italy during this time period. So a whole nother kind of uh, wing of history that you explore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's that, there, that's a, there's a lot I could uh, unpack in that question. So, uh, so let me first say uh, just on the question of, of the, the sort of amnesiac and, you know, where that comes from. Uh, that's uh, kind of like I was just saying about this, you know, one detail in, in the Jay Winter book, uh, kind of on a larger level. Uh, one book that I encountered uh, is um, a French, tra- uh, a translation of a book that's originally written in French uh, called The Last, oh, shoot, I'm going to uh, the, la- the last unknown, the last living soldier, the last unknown soldier, so, some, something like that. Um, and that's the story of uh, a French soldier named Anthelme Magin, who was repatriated after the war. He'd been in a POW camp in Germany, and he showed up at the train station in Paris, um, either without knowing who he was, or, or at least was unwilling to tell anybody. And so they had no, no idea what to do with this guy. And they put him in an asylum. And the doctor there, in an effort to try to identify him, published his picture in the paper. And 
And I think this story really, uh, for me, crystallized exactly what was going on at the time um, in regards to this, you know, belief in mediums and um, spiritualism and, and, and all the stuff you were kind of just talking about. Because uh, when the picture of this guy was published in the paper, it got thousands of responses from people saying, oh, that's my son, that's my husband. And many of these were, right. uh, there's no possible way it could have been him. You know, their son or husband, and they freely admitted this, was six inches taller than this guy or had different colored eyes or different colored hair. You know, there's just physically no way it could have been him. But yet they said, but I know it's still him. Um, and it was, you know, just a truly heartbreaking story, which, as I said, kind of crystallized um, kind of what was happening mentally with so many people at the time, right? And, and, I, and I think there, you know, that kind of... Uh, wish fulfillment, but you know, this total belief in the irrational that you saw in all these grieving families in regards to this amnesiac patient, um, to me really kind of bespeaks a larger thing that's happening at, at, at the time, um, uh, where, you know, you, you kind of, at least for me, my sense of, of, of the inner war years is that, that people are, are really in shock because, you know, they've just witnessed and survived this, this thing that, that there had never been anything like it. You know, it, it would have been impossible, uh, 20 or 30 years before. And so there's almost this kind of feeling of, you know, if that could happen, then well, well, what else, what else could happen that, you know, we wouldn't have believed before. And, uh, so that, that to me was, was a really, that that's what makes it interesting to to kind of write about that time, um, and uh, I, I guess to get to the second part of what of what you're saying, the 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 decision to to set it in Italy uh, had uh, a lot to do with uh, once I sort of started digging in and and realized just sort of how fascinating the whole you know not it wasn't just a question of things happening around Verdun this was happening everywhere um, I kind of wanted to sort of try to, uh, I guess, get a little more panoramic examination of it in. And uh, I've always, you know, I, 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 cho- I chose Italy because I like Italy, you know, I, but um, just <laughs> good excuse to travel. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I, I was hoping to, you know, drink some Sangiovese and eat some, uh, you know, Taglatelli uh, and Brodo. And so, um, you know, I, that's, that's a no brainer in that, in that sense. But um, uh uh, what I want, you know, I wanted initially. I wanted to kind of. Write, I don't think the Italian Front, um, with the huge exception, of course, of a farewell to arms, uh, the Italian Front hasn't been written about that much in English because uh, there weren't all that many Americans uh, or, or British involved uh, on the Italian Front. But it's uh, really fascinating um, and really horrifying, um, and you know, a so. I wanted to kind of find some way to kind of tell part of that story in, in the story I was already telling. And so that's, that's kind of part of why I, I initially said it in Italy. But uh, as you brought up what, what I realized, and, and I picked, you know, some, I was going to you know, have them go to a city. There's a, this, you know, amnesiac is going to be there. Um, you know, I picked Bologna, I think just because it seemed, um, you know, it's an old a famous university town. You know, it just, it seemed like a, you know, a, relatively realistic place that there would be a, um, a, a mental hospital of, of some sophistication. Um, and then I started researching it and only then did I realize that right at the time that I was writing about that Bologna, the Po Valley, Emilia Romana, but particularly Romania was this real flashpoint for the conflict between Mussolini's black shirts and, um, 
pretty much everybody else, you know, communists especially. Um, and uh, at first I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Um, and then I thought, well, that's actually perfect, right? Because um, once I started reading about Italian fascism is, you know, the, about the most, I, I had had this, you know, I, idea of, about the kind of just this sort of irrational character of, of all the thinking and doing at the time. And then you start reading about um Italian fascism, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, well that certainly rings the bell for a rational, right? You know, I mean, just uh, in the in the sense of uh, you know Mussolini saying things like, you know, they didn't even have a platform, you know, like a power power was their platform, um, and so in some ways uh, that just felt like a really perfect synergy because uh, it seemed like it was the kind of political expression of all this sort of emotional stuff that that I had been writing about. So one of the there's a passage that I want to read because it struck me again as encapsulating uh, some real historical truth again without footnotes and and so forth, but really capturing something about the nature of politics in that post-war period, especially for young people. Um, and you see this in the fascists in Italy. You see it in the Freikorps movement in, in Germany, where they're made up these paramilitary uh, organizations. They're made up often the you know the officers and so forth will be veterans. But there's a real youth component to it of people that um, f- somehow feel like they've missed out on the war, and oddly, as odd as that might sound. And there's a mm-hmm. section on page 259 where you said, in retrospect, a good deal of the future became visible that night uh, when there had been this fascist uh, riot, particularly in the faces, orange and sweating beside the fires of boys who had come of age just a few years too late to understand what they were doing. I thought that was just a great, um, powerful passage that really st- – captured something. Well, yeah, well, thank you. And I mean, and I, I think, um, one thing that really struck me in, in thinking about this time and, and writing about it, and of course, you know, anyone, you know, my own writing, anyone that reads this book is, is going to do it through the lens of knowing what was going to happen in the next several years. Right. Um, so you can't kind of ignore that. Uh, but it, the, you know, and especially in Italy, I mean, the, the, you know, the, as you well know, probably way better than I do, Jay. You know that that um, that their involvement with with the war was totally cynical. You know, I mean, it was they had, they had really no reason to get involved other than a, than a land grab and uh, this you know some idea of trying to you know kind of unify the country finally as Italians or something like that. Um, and they put their people through these extraordinary hardships. Um, and, you know, the, the rate of executions in the Italian army was, you know, multiple times higher than it was anywhere else, for example. And I think in, in certain units, they even uh, resorted to, um, you know, kind of old-fashioned Roman decimation, right, um, for underperforming units and things like that. So, um, so, you know, really terrifying. And then just a few years later, to see all these people kind of dressing, you know, who are just a little bit too young to actually experience it, dressing up in these uniforms and kind of lionizing it and romanticizing it, um, is just kind of, um, it tells you something really frustrating about human nature, I think. So let me ask you a little bit about process then too, because, uh, knowing now better about how Italy fit into the evolution of the story. Um, when did you introduce Paul? Who's one of the other main characters just for the listeners who haven't read it. Um, who's an Austrian, uh, former soldier. Was that, was that a, a way of getting the Italian front into it to put it, the Austrians fought the bulk of the, or the opponents of the Italians on that front? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was part of it. Um, 
part, you know, the, there, I think there's always kind of with, with decisions like that. I mean, there's always kind of a combination of things that just kind of happen organically and things that happen very intentionally um, or, or organically, or I could say accidentally, I guess, would be another word that would work there. Um, so, you know, one of one of the, the in my process of writing the book, the kind of frame that takes place in uh, your old stomping grounds of, of Southern California, uh, I, I wrote most of that last. Uh, but the f- opening scene where he encounters Paul at the funeral was, was one of the early things that I wrote. Um, and so I always kind of knew that there would be this other character that would be there as this kind of, tr- you know, trigger point for Tom, the narrator. Um, and only kind of slowly, yeah, did I sort of begin to figure out, you know, who he was, what his backstory was and what he had to do with the rest of the story. And I think you're absolutely right that part of that part of the decision to have him as an Austrian and be involved in, um, in, um, the Italian front was, was a, as a way to kind of get some of that, um, terrifying description, uh, of the Alpine warfare in the Italian front on the page for sure. And just to be clear, again, for the, for listeners who are more interested in military history, that is one of the one of the strong points of the book too. Is this uh, description of the Italian front about which you, one doesn't read very often, and and which, especially as you as you describe it, is really horrifying. These uh, the Italian mining operations to to explode entire Austrian positions or to level mountains. It made me curious to want to go. Um, see these places, see what they look like as well. Cause I've never, I've never been, did you go to the Asanzo and these other locations? Uh, I went to, um, the, around, uh, Coberid, which was, you know, used to be called Caparedo, uh, on the Asanzo river. Yeah. Um, and, uh, spent some time there. I did not really go into the upper Dolomites where much of the Alpine warfare in the book takes place. A lot of that is actually pretty, you can get there, but it's pretty inaccessible. Um, so a lot of that, that just comes from, from reading and imagination. But, 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 but again, you know, one of those, uh, you you just happen to kind of look for these details that, that for whatever reason resonate with you as a writer. And that was, you know, just hearing about all this tunnel and kind of mine craft warfare, uh, that was happening, tens of thousands of feet in the air, you know, I mean, that all, you have all these people that are underground and yet up in the clouds at the same time. Um, just, you know, seems so strange and contradictory to me that I, I, you know, I felt like I had to find some way to, to work that in. And um, Paul has another function, of course, too, which is to, um, well, and you, you can tell me, but to me, it seemed like he provides a bit of romantic tension between, or he, an extra source of romantic tension in the in the novel. And then he mm-hmm. is also looking for someone. He's looking for an ambulance driver, and and you know thinks or hopes that this amnesiac will will be the one uh, who murdered a friend of his. That's right. That's right. Uh, part of the uh, sort of reveal of of Paul's character late in the book is that he um, he, he initially represents himself when when Tom meets him as as just a journalist who has come to uh, write about the story of this amnesiac. But um, it turns out that he in fact has a sort of long standing uh, and just as irrational sort of quest of his own to um, to to find someone that is that has haunted him. Um, 
and uh, and that that you know that felt I mean because so much of of the book is is about uh, people searching desperately you know uh, for loved ones and and sort of living their lives in this very provisional and totally irrational way in order uh, to leave the door open that they might find these loved ones and I kind of wondered if it you know if that could ha- happen for the opposite reasons too. Uh, if, if there were, and I don't, you don't hear that story as much, um, probably cause it didn't happen as much. Uh, but, but the, the fact that he might, that there might be this person that had actually done him harm, uh, that he was not able to forget, um, I thought, uh, would be a, be a compelling counterpoint. I'm, I, well, I've, I've studied the second world war as well. And of course, and there's, there are many, lots of cases where that, that happens there too, you know, where the, the, the occupation soldiers who commit crimes, and then there's a kind of search for, for retribution or reckoning after the war. So it's not, not all that implausible, it seems to me, but um, uh, an, an, an extra enrichment of the story in this case. Um, another connection I, that I made with the Second World War was the fate of Dr. Bianchi, the, the Italian doctor who's treating the amnesiac, um, and sort of the problem of the emigre. He, he, he wants to try to escape the fascists, but where, where can he go? And that, that question of where do you, when things go south in your, in your home country, where, where can you land safely? Was a, I thought that was a, uh, not tragic, but a, a, a kind of sad situation that he found himself in. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, and as a, as a, one of the, you know, uh, rules are made to be broken, of course, but one of the the kind of things that, that you often think about as a, as a writer is, is just, you know, uh, every character, every character's desire, you know, everyone is motivated by, by wanting something that they can't get easily. So, um, that, uh, for, for this Dr. Bianchi character who becomes important, he's both treating the amnesiac and then also becomes a sort of friend to, uh, to Tom and Sarah. Um, and, uh, is, uh, he has worked very hard to kind of get to a place, uh, where he's doing the work that he feels important and he wants to do and feels, feels gratifying as a, as a doctor. And yet here is this political situation, which he can see is kind of, is sort of like will doom him and his family. Um, and it is difficult and, uh, or maybe even impossible, right. For him. Uh, so the, the question that's placed to him is, you know, do you, do you immigrate say to America, which means losing all credentials and having to start over again? Um, or do you see out, uh, this horrible thing that's, that's happening all around you. Um, and, uh, you know, th- those are the kind of sort of situations, right. Of, of, of choice, uh, that just from a narrative standpoint, you want to, you want to try to, to put your characters in. So let's talk a little bit of, I, I mentioned this to you off, uh, offline, so to speak, that one of the joys for me in reading the book was so many familiar locations in Los Angeles where I, where I grew up. So you must've also done some work, uh, both researching the film industry and and locations in Los Angeles and so forth for the the kind of I don't know you probably have a term for it but the you know the, the second setting of the book in 1950 in in and around Los Angeles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I read uh, a great book um, called City and Nets um, by uh, I'm now forgetting the author's name. This is embarrassing, um, but uh, but that's a history of. Uh, 
of Hollywood in the 1940s, uh, and several other books as well, memoirs and, and things like that. Um, but uh, that choice, I, I the I got the idea to uh, um, that I wanted part of this to be set in uh, in Southern California, uh, just from an anecdote that I encountered many many years ago in a book called "The Rest Is Noise" by uh, Alex Ross, the music critic, and um, he's he's writing about uh, uh, who is it? I guess uh, Schoenberg, uh, the the Viennese modernist composer, and he. Um, sort of recounts this sort of famous anecdote where Schoenberg is at like a supermarket in, you know, LA, you know, uh, probably, you know, testing out the softness of a cantaloupe or something like that and runs into, uh, Tomas Mann who has, um, Schoenberg is sure that the Dr. Faustus character in Mann's novel is based on him and he's furious and, and, um, says, you know, I didn't have syphilis, uh, which is, you know, what the Dr. Faustus character does. Um, I just thought that just the, uh, sort of, uh, opposition of, you know, thinking about these two serious central European guys with accents now in this brightly lit, uh, Southern California space full of, you know, fluorescent lighting and fresh fruit and sunlight. Uh, I mean, I just, I just love the kind of the, yeah, as I said, the, the opposition of those two things. And that's what I was really looking for in this book. You know, you can even just kind of see the, you know, the way the cover turned out, right. This dark moody sort of European, um, uh, uh, tableau. And, uh, I wanted the space that, that Tom and, um, and, uh, Paul inhabit, uh, the outside of that to be the opposite of that, you know, to be, uh, to, to be the opposite aesthetically, but, but also, you know, about as far as, you know, if they're going to go back to America, that's about as far literally as you can get, you know, from everything else, you know, they're pushed up right against the sea. Right. And the notion that it's a place with no past, whereas these characters are struggling so mightily with their past and, um, that's been, always been my, my kind of impression of Los Angeles, right? Everything's brand new. It's not really true, but exactly. Um, brand, brand new and, and very self-consciously kind of writing itself at that time into existence. Right. Um, and, and then there's even a unfe- unfettered by any other constraints. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, there's even a line in the book where he kind of, you know, quotes um, a famous line from A Farewell to Arms about, you know, the names of places having, you know, being the only ones that have dignity anymore um, after the war. Um, and, uh, you know, Tom says, and, you know, one of the things I liked about Los Angeles is that, you know, none of the places had any dignity or history or that none of the names had any dignity or history. You know, they were just these kind of made up brand new things. Um, so that, that seemed, uh, you know, like a, kind of a appropriate sort of juxtaposition. Um, and then, you know, also, uh, you know, the fact that it's not just Southern California, but it's Hollywood. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I very much think that, that, uh, all this, you know, all what the characters are doing in the whole book with the amnesiac in particular, but in other spaces as well, is they're, they're kind of telling themselves the story they want to believe. Right. Um, you know, uh, Sarah wants to believe she can find her husband and that she kind of by some miracle chance has, uh, in this asylum, uh, Tom wants to believe something very different. Um, and, you know, I think especially studio system, Hollywood, uh, era 
you know, that's kind of the, the sort of writing the story that, you know, America wants to believe about itself a little bit uh, at the time. And uh, so that that's no accident that, that those two things share, share space. So I think we've done a great job of, I hope, um, exciting listeners about the book. Uh, it's certainly worth reading. I'm glad that you brought up uh, Hemingway a couple of times. I wouldn't say, I, I know it's kind of an insult to an, to an artist to say you sound like or you write like, but um, Hemingway was very much in my mind as I was reading this, this book as well. And, and part, of the, part of the pleasure of it for sure was, was uh, the association with, with that, that great writer and, and, and the subject matter of Farewell to Arms and so forth was, was uh, um, part of that for sure. So I think I'll, I'll wrap up the, the discussion of the, of the novel right now and maybe give you a chance to talk about what you're reading. I always like to end the, an interview with um, a discussion of what, you know, what our authors think are, are worthwhile books. And you can mention a history book if you like, but, but feel free if, if there's some, uh, some literature that you're reading now that you want people to, to think about. Sure. Well, first, let me say thank you, Jay. Uh, and you mentioned before that uh, I uh, do not need a historian's approval, but I, but I, <laughs> I very, very much appreciate it. And uh, in um, you know, I, I'm not I'm certainly far from a historian myself, though I was a um, history major in college Good many you. years ago. Uh, and <laughs> like, I, I, I added English right at the end because uh, I, so I felt I felt myself slipping in that direction. But um, but but I you know the. I, and I didn't set out here to necessarily write, um, you know, something that uh, was 100% accurate, you know, in in all of its historical detail. But but the fact that you know people uh, who have studied the period and have thought deeply about it, as you have, uh, you know, find it to be plausible and um, and uh, evocative uh, means a great deal to me. So uh, so I just you know want to say thank you very much for that. It's a pleasure. Um, yeah. So, uh, let's see. Uh, so I, as far as reading, I have been, um, I'm working on another book, which, uh, is kind of advancing in, in kind of the same mode as this one. Um, but, uh, you know, as one does after you write a book about World War One, of course you want to write a book about World War Two, right? So I've been <laughs> thinking about that and I've been, uh, reading a lot of memoirs, um, a lot of them have been about Poland in World War II. So I just read um, Jan Karski's uh, report from a secret state or something like that. I don't know if you're familiar with that mm-hmm. book. Um, uh, but, you know, Karski was a, uh, a worked for the Polish underground and um, just had uh, this kind of amazing... Uh, and dramatic experience uh, during World War II, where he, um, you know, was captured by the Soviets, uh, sent to Russia, you know, uh, managed to break out of a uh, Soviet camp, then was captured by the Germans when he got back to Poland, managed to break out of a train on the way to a, a German concentration camp, joined the Polish underground, and, and he became this courier uh amongst other things, between the Polish underground in Poland and the government in exile, uh, first in Paris, then later in London. And um, it was kind of during that, as one of his roles there, he was, um, you know, uh, one of the first uh, Gentiles to uh, go into the Warsaw Ghetto to kind of offer a report to his superiors about what's happening there. And he also went to, um, was kind of dressed up as a guard so that he could go observe um I believe it was Belzec 
the death camp. So, um, so I just read that book, which was, I remember now sounding familiar. Now I remember the story and thinking of how amazing you're, you're breaking into the Warsaw ghetto. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. A, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It, it, uh, it's, you know, and just, just, the anyway, so a real, a real valuable and, uh, uh, just, just kind of amazing witness to, um, uh, so much, uh, horror. So, so, uh, that book really blew me away. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, I'll say just as far as uh, another book that I read recently, which, um, I thought was just fantastic. This is, this is fiction. Um, uh, just, just so I don't only talk about history. Um, but, uh, there's a German writer named Jenny Erpenbeck who, um, is still alive, I believe. And she is, uh, she grew up, uh, I think in East Germany, um, you know, through, through the communist era. And, uh, she had a book, she has a book I read recently, which is called end of days, which, uh, imagines this one woman who's born at the beginning of the 20th century in, um, I guess, uh, somewhere in, in Galicia, um, you know, at the, at the very Eastern edge of the Habsburg empire. And, uh, Every six and it's it, it's it's one of, I, I like talking about it because it's kind of interesting because it has this very gimmicky thing where uh, or something that could be gimmicky where uh, the whole idea of the book is that in the first chapter the this the central character who's unnamed she dies um, as a as an infant um, but the second chapter is okay well what if she hadn't died as as an infant what's what's her life going to be like after that and then you know in that second chapter she dies at fourteen. Um, and then the third chapter is, well, what if she didn't die at 14? You know, what if she, you know, fate passed a different way on that particular day? What's the next, you know, 20 years of her life look like until she dies at 35, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's something very kind of, as I said, almost kind of gimmicky about the form of the book. Uh, but it is just so brilliantly written and the way it kind of synthesizes the history of that part of the world as it sort of evolves from Habsburg Europe to post-World War I Europe to um, World War II Europe uh, to uh, uh, Iron Curtain Europe, um, yeah, I, I just thought was so captivating and brilliant. So is your new book going to be set in Eastern Europe or – do you have a, a, a title yet? Provisional uh, one? Yeah, well, much, much to be determined at this point, but, um, part, parts of it, uh, certainly will, uh, parts will be set in, in the United States and, and parts will probably be set in France. Uh, so <laughs> how I'm going to pull that all together, I have no idea, but that's the idea right now. <laughs> Somehow the characters should end up in LA driving through Palos Verdes, uh, looking at horses. No, I'm just kidding. Teasing. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> it could be a bit of a reprise, you know, just sort of a, a, a wink, a wink to anyone that, that read the first one. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, thanks, Nick. I really appreciated uh, the chance to read the book. I highly recommend it if you're if you're at all interested in the period. Um, it's it's a great read. I think uh, there are um, plenty of pleasures and surprises that we did not discuss. So so even if you listen to this whole podcast, there's still a lot to um, to gain from reading the book itself. So thanks again, uh, Nick, and thank you for listening. 